So if you're new to CFC, can I just give you a quick 30 second of how the Lord has given us opportunity to really redeem that space between us and the gate station. When we bought that property, there was a porn shop, a liquor store, and a room that a cult was using to train their members. And now uh, the junior high meet there to be taught in the Word of God. We have marriage classes there, and we're going to be hosting Alpha where people will discuss spiritual things. So what a great, great privilege to be a part of saying we're really redeeming the land that the Lord has created to be used for spiritual purposes. So I appreciate your part in that. Uh, I am holding as a reminder an invitation to Alpha. Maybe last week you wrote a name. You've been praying for someone If you have an invitation, I have not yet made an invitation. I hope you will, because I genuinely believe there are many in our city who have lots of desire and interest to talk about spiritual things. It's just, where would I go to a safe place to be able to discuss those things? And so Alpha is that opportunity. Encourage you to invite. It'll be starting there on September 6th, actually. And so... Get that word out if you would. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you to turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark. We've been out of the Gospel of Mark for a few weeks, but we're going to return and continue our walk through the life of Jesus. Now, for big picture, we are in the final week of the life of Jesus as we're in Mark chapter 11. And thus far in that final week, we have made it to Tuesday. So just for reference points, you may know Bible stories, but not always know the the chronology of them. It was a Sunday when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he was elevated, the name of Jesus in that city, so much that the whole city was buzzing. Who is this Jesus? That whole idea that we could be elevating Jesus in this city so that many would be going, who is this Jesus that you worship, who you live for, who you order your life around? That was Sunday. Now, Jesus didn't stay in Jerusalem, so he was there during the day and then would leave the city at night. So he was there for the triumphal entry. Then he left the city Sunday night. He walks back into Jerusalem Monday morning, and Tony taught us he walked by this fig tree without fruit, and there was the cursing of the fig tree. That was as he's entering Jerusalem. When he gets into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and he cleanses the temple. Though we said he didn't really cleanse it, what did he do? He trashed it. He threw it over tables and money changers, and there was also, he was restoring what the temple was intended for, that place where the presence of God is experienced. So he cleanses the temple on Monday. Monday evening, after dark, he again leaves the city and does not come back until Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, Peter notices the tree which Jesus had cursed just less than 24 hours earlier is now withered already. He asks Jesus about it, and Jesus takes the opportunity to teach about believing in the supernatural work of prayer because of what happened with the fig tree. That's on the way back in. When he gets into Jerusalem now on Tuesday morning, Jesus begins answering four final questions. And I say four final questions because if you are there in your Bible in Mark chapter 11, sneak ahead to Mark chapter 12 and verse 34, and you'll see that it says there, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So that's why we're calling it on Tuesday morning, Jesus answering final questions because they literally reach a point where they go, no more questions. He doesn't say that. They decide that. Now, it's not his disciples. It's the crowd. That they, No more questions. So this morning, we're going to begin the first of four weeks of Jesus encountering final questions. And I don't know about you, but because they are the final questions, they are raised in my own attention to go, what was asked and what did Jesus say in these final four issues? So the first one this morning is the question of his authority. And it's covered in Mark 11. 
in these verses, 27 through 33. If you have a copy of the scriptures, follow along in your Bible. If not, look up here at the screen. It says this. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, so he's back in the temple where less than 24 hours ago he had done what? He had trashed it. And the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. So there's this, like the important religious people. And they're saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, when these things, what's he talking about? What do you think they're talking about, these things? I think they're talking about the trashing of the temple that had just happened. They're going, by what authority are you coming in here and throwing stuff over like that? I don't know if this is going to be a problem. Somebody technologically say, Windows has given me a message. <laughs> I don't think it's from the Lord, but it has this <laughs> snooze restart now. So somebody who knows something might come up here and do something. How about that? <laughs> I'm going to stay teaching. So they go, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus says, well, let me ask you one question. And you answer me, and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's going, I'll answer after you answer me. Here's my question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, here's what happens. Because that seems, I don't know, why is he asked that first? Because it says, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? Oh yeah, we definitely got to get that gone because it's going to cover up stuff. Why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from men, they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to be, have been a real prophet. So don't miss, they're, they're going, that's kind of a tricky question. Should we watch him? Because I know you're going to watch him. <laughs> I can yak, 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 but nothing more interesting than that. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> Jeez. Back to Jesus. <laughs> you answer me this. And they go, well, if we say this, then he's going to say this. We say this. And he's going to say that. So we know what they decide? We don't know. Now, is that true? We don't know. No, that's not true. They do know. They just don't want to say so. Jesus has revealed that they're not asking. They're trying to trap him. And so he goes, well, two can play that game. If you want to do that, I'll do that to you. You go first. And they refuse. So he says, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, so Jesus actually refuses to answer the question. That whole idea that we say, every question's a good question, Jesus disagrees. <laughs> now it's not because, watch this, it's not because the question, it's because of the, it's because of the motive. That's exactly right. See, they're not asking to learn. They're only asking to trap. And Jesus says, well, if you want to trap me, I'll trap you first. He refuses to answer because they don't want to learn. In fact, they already know. They just don't like the answer. You ever gone back to the Lord after he answered you clearly and you went, I want a different answer. And you've harassed him because you're actually looking for a different answer than the answer. It's what we, it's what we as kids do to our parents, right? I, I answered this clearly, but I don't like that answer. That's why I'm asking again. And in fact, it's a great question. By what authority do you do these things? And the answer is this. <laughs> he had answered it so many times. We don't give homework at church, I know. But if you don't have a, a plan already in place in your life for reading your Bible on a daily basis, let me give you an opportunity this week to read through the Gospel of John. It might take you four chapters a day, or if you do it for six, three chapters a day. Read through the Gospel of John 
looking for the answer to this question, the authority of Jesus. And you know what you're going to find? That he is going to say over and over and over and over and over and over again, the authority is from my Father who sent me. In fact, I encourage you, every time you see it as you read through the Gospel of John, underline the times he says, my Father who sent me, the Father who sent me. It, it, don't always say, it doesn't always say, my Father who sent me, but in that sentence, there is the, my Father and who sent me. And I think you're going to come up with more than 30 times he's answered this question. So clearly, they're not asking because they don't know. They're asking because they want to trap. They already know the answer. They just want to try to use it against Jesus. So he refuses to answer, which then led me to actually, as I thought through this text, not them, me. My questions to the Lord, my request of the Lord, are often good requests, but why doesn't he answer me? You ever ask yourself that? Why doesn't God seem to answer me? You've prayed for your marriage, you've prayed for your children, and you've prayed for your job, or you've prayed for, and you just pray and pray, and it's like, God, why don't you answer me? I've asked myself that. I've had lots of people go, why won't God answer me? And so in this text, Jesus refuses to answer them for the clear reason, because they're trying to trap him. I don't think I've ever tried to trap Jesus. But the Bible actually, this is why one of the reasons I just love the scripture. It speaks so clearly to some of the core questions we have in life. Jesus the scripture answers definitively, here are some reasons why it may be that God is not answering you. James 4 says this, you ask but don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. I would use this one first because that was their, their motive was to trap. James says, you may be asking and not receiving because your motive in asking is selfish, to spend it on your own pleasure. So why doesn't God answer me? It may be that God is not answering you or answering me because our asking is for selfish reasons. Now, I can already predict, and so let me try to answer it first. Some are going to come up afterward and say, well, so am I allowed to ask God to heal me? Is that selfish? And what's the answer to that? Well, maybe, maybe not. You can, you can ask the same exact request, but it come from a God-glorifying motive or a self-glorifying motive. So don't get lost in, is this an acceptable request? Actually, ask yourself, why am I asking the Lord that it doesn't rain today? Why am I asking the Lord for it? children or more children? Why am I asking the Lord for a better job or a different job? At the core of the request, is it the kingdom of God? Or it would make my life just lots easier, better, more pleasing to me? Really, really challenged a number of years ago by an article that John Piper wrote regarding prayer, and he gives an analogy that I've just never forgotten. I want to read it to you this morning because I think it will probably resonate with your heart like it did mine. He says, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers, and here's the analogy, they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie. Can you picture that? They turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Here's how he unfolds it. Until you believe that life is war, you're not going to know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. 
Hear the analogy. It's as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, believers, and gave them a crucial mission, go bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. Who's that? The father. And he says, Jesus, to us, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter. To give tactical advice, to send in air cover when you or your comrades need it. That's a great picture, right? That's what prayer's for. But what have millions of Christians done? They've stopped believing we're at war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning. Just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what'd they do with the walkie-talkie? They rigged it up as an intercom in their house and cabin and boat and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. That struck me. Because I just thought, what do I pray about? When it comes down to it, so much of what I pray about is pillow stuff. Lord, this would be nice. This would be comfortable. This would help. I'd enjoy this. When are my prayers kingdom kingdom driven lord for this individual lord for opportunity with the gospel in this way for resources to invest in your mission that that my prayers are overwhelmingly rooted in a motive for the advancing of the kingdom of god and the bearing of fruit in my own life did you pray this morning Was it pillow or war? You see it? See, I I don't think that Piper or even the scripture is, is saying, we don't ask God for the details of life. But prayer ultimately is for a wartime, a spiritual battle. That's why it was given. And so... It may be that our answers never come because they're pillow issues. Or James gives another option of why God doesn't answer me. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, which is all of us at times, right? Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it'll be given to him. Sweet promise. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being, what type of man? Double-minded, unstable in all his ways. So uh, James is equally clear. There is no answer for that which is asked for selfish motives. And there is no answer for those who are double-minded in contrast to the single-minded individual. That's very clear. What isn't always so clear is, what's it mean to be double-minded? We think, well, it's because I didn't have enough faith. We think doubting. Oh, I need more faith. Remember, it's not that I need more faith. It's need that I, that I need faith more. Remember when we re- rehearse that over and over. It's not bigger faith. It's faith more in each and every circumstance. So let me give you a definition for double-minded, an indication of double-mindedness. I reveal that I am double-minded when my obedience to God is limited or stops <laughs> with my agreement with God. I'm double-minded, watch, when instead of living here, 
under the authority of God, submitted to his authority, I live here where the word of God speaks to my circumstances, but it speaks equally to my circumstances like my desires speak to my circumstances. And God says this, but I think this. God says, I want this, but I say I want this. And I am tossed between what God wants and what I want. That's double-mindedness. See, as long as I agree with God, I'm good with it. But when I don't agree, it's like the wife who told me one time, I don't have to submit to my husband when I disagree. I submit when I agree. (laughs) And I thought she was joking, but she wasn't. That doesn't make any sense. When you agree, it's not submission. It's doing what you already think is right. But listen, does God's word ever say something that you don't think is best or call you to do something that you don't feel like you can do? Yeah. And it's in that moment, either we remain single-minded, submitted, or we become double-minded. Of all people, my granddaughter, who's not even three yet, gave me this example. She, Hattie, it's not three yet, has a younger sister, Kate, and now a younger sister, Rebecca, excuse me, Rachel. (laughs) I'm not going to hear the end of that one. Rachel Elizabeth. Rachel Elizabeth, only born a couple weeks ago. And Hattie, who's not three yet, loves being big sister already. And so she's sitting on the couch with grandma in Florence and Rachel Elizabeth is laying across grandma's and Hattie's lap and they're talking about how helpful Hattie has been. When you take the diapers and put them in the trash, when you clean up the blocks and the floor, it's so good. Yes, I love helping with Rachel. I love Rachel. Mom, sitting in the rocking chair in the room, says, Hattie, you would be most helpful if you started using the potty yourself because she's not potty trained yet. And Hattie changes her face immediately, takes Rachel, pushes her over to grandma, gets off the couch, walks over to mom and says, I don't like Rachel anymore. We're horrible grandparents. We have horrible grandchildren. I mean, who says that? You know who says that? Honest kids say that. Because how many times have we said, I love God and I love Jesus. And then he called you to do something that you didn't want to do. And you went. I don't like you anymore. Now, you never said that to God because you're too polite. But that's exactly how we respond to him. We go, too far, too much, no way. Really, every single one of us have been like that to the Lord, where we said, no. I I liked it when we agreed. I don't like it when you say, you want me to do what I don't want to do. And then we become double-minded. I want this. You want that. And the Lord says, don't expect that I would give wisdom in that moment. See, the beauty of this passage is this, that wisdom recipients live with a Yes, Lord, heart. Yes, Lord. Mommy, you want me to... Yes, Mommy. Lord, you want me to forgive? You want me to reach out? You want me to eat with my neighbors? You want me to love sinners like you love them? You want me to speak the gospel up at work? 
Yes, Lord. We live with a, it's always a yes, Lord. And it's a yes, Lord that goes in both directions. It's a yes, Lord, to all that he already has revealed. And it's a yes, Lord, before he gives wisdom in unique circumstances. See, there's what the scripture has already said. Are you saying yes, Lord, to that? I'm living under it versus considering it. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And then there are those times where you're asking the Lord for wisdom with family, with friends, at work, and he clearly answers you. But your yes, Lord, was waiting on what the answer was. Instead of, yes, Lord, before you reveal, before you make clear, you have my yes. See the difference? James is simply saying, wisdom is for those who have saying yes to what has been and before he gives wisdom and circumstances. It may be God is silent because you have double-minded. You went, no, <laughs> I'm going to hold on to the life. As I, that's all Hattie was saying. No, I'm, a, I, I'm not going to do that. I want to live life the way I want to live it. Now, as an adult, you go, what a miserable way to live. But how many times does God look at you and I and go, really, you want to live that way? That's miserable. You want to live with that? You could live free and clean from that. But we hold on. And the psalmist says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, if I hold on to it and I treasure it, like, like we treasure the way we want to do things, when we treasure what we think is best, when I regard it in my heart and I hold on to it, the Lord will not hear. Not, not that he can't hear. He, he won't hear the one who is going, I hold on to what I want more than what you declare. So it may be that my asking is selfish. It may be that I'm double-minded. Uh, I am constantly conflicted between what the Lord wants versus what I want. Or it may be that he doesn't answer because there is known sin in your life and you cling to it. You know you should confess it, but if you confess it, it'd be an acknowledgement of change. And, and I don't want to change. I want to hold on to life as I want it. The, the Bible gives a very clear example to the husbands in the room. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Husbands, can you hear me clearly here? Your prayer life is directly connected to your marriage and specifically how you treat your wife. Because Peter is simply acknowledging when you treat your wife in a way that does not reflect the scriptures, that does not reflect the love of God, that does not reflect how Christ loves the church, when you don't do that, then it hinders your prayers. So you want your prayers to be active and responded? Then go to your wife and confess. May it be that you have ruled with a dogmatic heart and that you have demanded your way. And you have not been gentle. You have not considered her interest. Husbands, address your wife and your prayers will become powerful. Now, wives, what would that mean for you? 
Well, the scripture's clear direction to you is submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. So where there is an unwillingness to submit to your husband is a reflection of an unwillingness to submit to the Lord, and that is going to hinder your prayers. To our children, the scripture is clear. Obey your parents. And, and I, the teenagers are over in their groups right now, but quite frankly, what is it that keeps teenagers' prayers from being powerful? That they don't want to obey their authority. Maybe that's you don't want to obey your authority. You're a boss. You see, there is a direct connection between how we live, what we hold on to, and our prayers before God. Selfish, double-minded, a failure, an unwillingness to confess. Or, or there might be something totally different going on. So totally different from those first three is this. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. See, when you and I face a trial, what's the first thing we want God to do? Make it go away, God. Get me out of it, right? But if that would happen, what would never happen in your life? You'd never learn endurance. Uh, there are so many of us who can relate to thinking, I need to get in shape. I'm going to go for a run. You with me now? You've thought this at some point in your life? I need to get in shape. I'm going to go for a run. So you put on your shorts, your shoes, and you ran down the street, around the corner. You got like 400 yards in, and you thought, I'm so tired. It's just like... This is miserable. This was a bad idea. You, you, you just get in and you start to feel tired. And it's like, I can't do this. And you make a really defining moment decision there. You either stop and turn around and go home and never gain endurance. Or you go, the very fact that I am tired after 400 yards is why I should keep on going. Because endurance has its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So hear me clearly. You may be going, God, this is hard. Get me out. And he would say, oh, no. If I get you out of every hard moment, your faith will never grow. Your faith will never gain endurance. So it's not because you're selfish. It's not because you're double-minded. It's not because you're treasuring sin in your heart. It's because your faith needs to increase. Again, not bigger faith, but faith more. You need to keep walking and faith. And my glory will increase with your endurance. So it may be that God isn't answering immediately in order for your faith to increase, faith more, and that his glory is greater because of your endurance. How many times have folks trusted in Jesus in the face of sickness or in the face of hard and continued to rejoice and continued to honor God? And people go, wow, how do you do that? Where's that come from? And the humbly say, the Lord gives me strength. I'm trusting in God. And people go, wow, that's a great God. So what we want to happen may not be happening, not because God doesn't love you, but because he does love you and he's working for your good. Can I give you a, an example straight from the Gospels? There's a certain man who was sick. 
Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So there's Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. He's sick. The sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he he whom you love is sick. So what's that tell you about Jesus and Lazarus? Yeah, they're buddies. They're good friends, actually. He's not a stranger. The one you love, Lazarus, your buddy, sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. A couple days later, they're going, yeah, right. But for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha Martha, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't sound like love at all, does it? If somebody loves you and you're in a, in a difficult situation, they stop and immediately come, right? But Jesus doesn't. He does love them and he stays. He doesn't go immediately. And what happens? He dies. What's all this? It's not going to end in death stuff. You said it wasn't going to end in death. He's dead. Jesus waits, shows up late. And Martha's ready for him. You know what she says? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I thought you, why didn't you come? Why Why didn't you come and help? And her sister Mary, what's she think? Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They think exactly the same thing. In fact, they think what you and I think. Jesus, you're late. Because if you love us, you show up immediately. That's what you and I tend to think. So Jesus says, well, take me to the grave and roll away the stone. And they go, that's a terrible idea. You believe how, you know how badly four, he's been dead four days. That's how late you are. He's going to stink like big time. To which Jesus says, didn't I say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Yeah, we did believe last week. Ever thought that? You believe and then you stop believing? And in that moment, when they're not believing anymore, Jesus says, and I say to you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. So faith that was absent, had been present, then was absent, is present again. And they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then he says, this is kind of funny. He goes, ah. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. (laughs) It's almost like Jesus going, I know we, I know, you know, but I'm doing this for the watchers and the listeners. And then what's he say? Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth and Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Why would they unbind him? Because he was a living guy in grave clothes. Can I ask you a question? Which gives God greater glory? Showing up and going into the three people who loved him and healing him and they go, thank you, Jesus. We're not coming immediately and showing up much later when a whole crowd is gathered and calling a dead guy out of a tomb. Which gets more glory? Come on. <laughs> the dead guy. And whose faith is strengthened more? In the private room a sick person healed, or in a public place, a dead person raised. You see it? 
did Jesus love them? So much he waited. Could that be true for you? That he would be waiting, not because he doesn't care, not because he doesn't see, but because he does, and he does, and he does. Don't stop believing. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that he had, what he had done believed in him. It's almost like Jesus knew what he was doing. That's a good thing for you to remember. Because sometimes we wonder and sometimes we doubt. And I want to tell you this morning, he knows what he's doing. As much in your life as he did in that moment. He is not blind. He cares. And he is working for the building of your faith and for the building of his glory. So, what's your part in receiving wisdom? Confess any known sin in your life. That's where we begin. Whether that's a husband toward a wife, a wife toward a husband, a parent toward a child, an employee towards an employer, an employer towards an employee, a brother towards a sister, you and your private life. What only you know, confess your sin to the Lord. He will not hear those who hold on. Live with a yes, Lord, heart. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, to what you've declared. Yes, Lord, before I even know what you're going to do. Yes, Lord. And then endurance. Keep believing with the full confidence he is always working, even when it seems he's absent, even when it seems he's late. Believe with full confidence he's always working for your good and for his glory. Always, always. We don't see it. We don't know. (laughs) We don't know how it can be. But he is. His waiting is not a lack of love. His waiting is an expression of his deepest love and wisdom toward you. So confess, have a yes heart, and believe he loves you. There is no greater expression than the fact that he loves you, that he gave his son to be your sin bearer. And so I want us to remember that. I'm going to invite the men at this moment in our service. You can put your, what you've been writing aside, not because we're finished and now we're going to do another ritual, but because I want us to know surely and fully with everything that we've said that there is no greater expression than the love of God for you than what is reflected in these symbols of this cracker, the reminder of the body of Christ broken in love for you. And this cup, a symbol of the blood of Christ, a reminder of the love of Christ for you. He loves you. He loves you. He's not robbing you of life. He has come that you may have life. And so don't hold on to what you think is life. Confess your sin to him right now. And in the quietness, as you're waiting or as you hold the elements, use these quiet moments to confess and to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I trust you with what you've said and what you will say. Take these quiet moments to do those first two things.
God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe, they wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. See, God could not love you more. He has offered his son that if you would believe in him, life abundant life eternal sometimes our flesh cries no and our minds say no and I want us to remember this morning let's not say no to perfect love because he couldn't love you more would you as a reflection yes Lord I do believe you love me Yes, Lord, I do believe you're working. Yes, Lord, even in the hard, because there's nothing harder than the cross of Jesus. Even in the hard, Lord, I believe you're working for good, for your glory. Would you take declaring, I believe. Would you stand with me? And together, let's declare as Matt has declared that our heart says yes to Jesus. My heart says yes. Oh 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you are in Christ Jesus. But do you know why? Because rejoicing always and praying without ceasing and giving thanks in everything is a reflection, I believe. I believe you're good. I believe you're wise. I believe you love me. And I can wait on you, Lord. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep asking and rejoicing and giving thanks. If we can pray with you in in some way this morning, there's always men and women available out the back here north, out around the left, over in south. But don't let your faith go absent. Believe that he can. So ask that he will and praise him no matter what. If you're a member here at Christian Family Chapel, we have a special favor to ask of you. If you would, I know this may be hard, but if you would, after the end of next hour, next hour ends at 12.15, the end of next hour, if you would gather with your elders over in South. So wait till those doors open in the back, and then all members, if you would come back, about 12.15, 12.20. We have some shepherding as elders that we need to share with you as the body of Christ. So just members, it's the privilege that we have as being a part of this local body, Christian Family Chapel. As you go, go believing he loves you. God bless.